So the end of the year, every year for the rest of the life of this program is going to be a Disney film, right? Yes. It seems likely at this point. I mean... As they continue to buy off competitors, yes. Well, um, I mean, with yeah. the reversing of the Paramount ruling, and uh, let's assume we're doing this show 40 years from now, God help us. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to be going to see uh, Disney movies at Disney pic- Pictures and Universals at... Yeah, I mean... Look. At Mickey's. Yeah, it's you go to a Mickey, yeah. watch a Disney. Watch a Disney. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's the Disney movies are the only movies people are seeing in theaters. Disney will own this at some point. Yeah, yeah, we'll be the, I would yeah. sell in a heartbeat if it uh, had a nice paycheck. It depends on what they're going to let us do, but yeah, look, I'm no. a sellout. No, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, no, look. I'll tow the company line. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Look, Baby Yoda's cute enough. I've decided that uh, <laughs> I think I could be, get, get behind it a little bit. A little bit. Uh, yeah, look, Disney's going to own everything at some point, and there's yeah, a reason that way. I don't uh, go see their pictures uh, within the opening month anymore. Are, are we going to go ahead and predict in advance that it's going to be the last Star Wars movie for next year? Because it's going to make all that next year money. I mean, That's an interesting thing. It's right? got a two-week run before the end of the year. Yeah. So that's a lot of... So it's going to make the, a chunk, but... A lot then. Good. I mean, it would not be the first time a movie opened in December and ended up being the highest grossing yeah. movie of the next year, right? So it wouldn't be a total surprise. I mean, I don't really... Thinking how to see anything next year. I mean, Disney's Black kinda, Widow. Disney's taken a slow year in 2020, so yeah. I mean, the new Star Wars could end up being that. Uh, but I expect it to be Disney. Yes. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, you know, 365 days or so from now. I think there's a Pixar movie next year that'll probably yeah do some money. Uh, Mulan. I doubt we'll make money. It seems like <sighs> oh, that's kind that's of too uh, bad though. Yeah, the trailer's good because I'm excited about some Mulan. It's the first of the live action remakes that I think looks. Really exciting because they well, seems it's nice like they did something different. It's not just a bunch of CGI animals. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice that they were like, well, okay, we got a decent bones for a script here. Let's go ahead and tell a new story. Yeah, because nobody Mulan was good. Like uh, Ming Wins does but, a great voice performance yeah. in it, but nobody remembers that movie. Yeah, it's no well. Lion King or Aladdin. Or, yeah. yeah, I saw it in theaters. Did you guys? Oh, I saw it. Yeah, I, I like that movie a lot. Actually. I did too. So. I don't think I did. I don't even. Know. I've seen it all the way. From, My baby's sure. all grown up and saving China. <sighs> it's a good movie. It's fun. Yeah, but uh, when we started this experiment last year. Uh, I mean, I guess we could have predicted. I don't know why we'd have to go back and listen to last year's episode. Did we predict Endgame was going to be the one we talked about this year? Probably. I bet we did. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty... pretty... The writing seemed to be on the wall. Yeah. Though. Well, I guess we should tell people we're here to do. That feels hey. like a cold open. Hello, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table, and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film space course, because they're going to assume you already know this movie, and they'll try to talk about other stuff. Yeah, they're not going to let you talk about this movie, probably. Uh, yeah, it's like, you can use it as an example, because it's probably something that we've all seen. However... Like Star Wars, I've never had a Star Wars film assigned in a film study syllabus because, again, my instructors assume I've seen Star Wars. So uh, that is what that is. This week we are talking about Endgame, the biggest grossing film of 2019, which made, I think, a gazillion dollars. Yeah, uh, let me check my estimates here. That's me with my ticker tape. Uh, a gazillion and four dollars. You're oh, right, Dustin. One gazillion and four dollars, 31 cents. Um, well done. To the penny. To the penny. All the points are made up. Nothing matters. Uh, so, yeah, made a ton of cash. And so we're going to talk about this film, and we're going to do the thing that we do. Now, here is your warning, dear list. Oh, by the way, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am Dalton on most days. Yes. Um, therefore, uh, we are here to do this thing, but this thing does involve spoilers. Now, since no one on the planet hasn't seen this movie, we can generally assume, but we do know it is a relatively new release, and unless you have Disney+, Plus, you probably can't watch it on a streaming service. Uh, well, I guess you can rent it. You can rent it. Yeah. yeah. Nobody yeah. rents anymore. Yeah, you just yeah you pay for your monthly subscription fees and get it from that, but uh, we are going to spoil this a little bit. But we'll generally kind of avoid it, even though again we can assume 
quite a lot of knowledge um, for nearly all of our listeners. So we'll have a synopsis, which will be, you know, the, everything that happens, but maybe avoiding specific spoiling details. And I think a discussion of spoilers actually is pretty applicable uh, for this particular film. Then we're going to uh, expand our syllabus and talk about how you might teach this film in a course film or otherwise and then we're going to get down to business and analysis and we're not going to care at all about what happens uh in terms of spoilers and you know that great kiss between captain america and the falcon uh we're going to talk all about that it's so hot um and that's not a real spoiler you guys remember when ant-man goes up thanos's butt and explodes him that was my favorite part (laughs) much different movie yeah it's a much better movie. I agree. Uh, yes. Nonetheless, we're going to save all of that, you know, sort of a hypothetical goodness that we've given you till that moment. So without any further ado, um, Arthur, you're going to be our synopsizer as always. Let's hear a synopsis of Avengers Endgame. Picking up in the aftermath of Infinity War, our broken remaining heroes are left with no hope of returning the dusted. Five years later, with the team still looking for some glimmering chance, a hero once thought dead returns to inspire hope amongst the team. The only issue? His theory is unproven. The Avengers must unite one last time in a battle for the ages. Avengers Endgame grossed $2.79 billion worldwide, narrowly becoming the highest-grossing film of 2019 and all time. If you don't account for inflation, because as we've alluded to, the points are made up, ladies and gentlemen. Box office numbers are... F- yeah, yeah, Gone with the Wind's probably still making more it money. It is. It's still the top. <clears throat> yep. Will be forever. Yeah, probably so, because they, they keep releasing it. Well, and people had things to do other than go to movies these days. Yes, that is also true. But, but I, I've already told you my grandfather's Gone with the Wind story. Uh, probably. But they let out school oh my to God. go see Gone with the Wind. It was that big of an event. What he a, had a wow. day in which there was no school and saw wow. Gone with the Wind. That's pretty cool. Huh. huh. What a like, time. We're letting school out so everyone gets a chance to go. Huh. That's wild. Huh. Believe that. Huh. That's yeah. all I got. What a world we live in. Dalton's broken. You yep. broke Dalton. You broke me last year. Uh, so what else is new? Um, and I'm going to be sad uh, today. But nonetheless, we'll, we'll get on into that. Let's go ahead and just talk about the review, though, of the experience of the um, theme park ride that is <laughs> Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Do you rate this roller coaster well or not? I go to you first, Arthur. Do you like Endgame? Tell me why. Tell me why not. I really get a kick out of this movie. I, I do. Um, I think this movie works a lot better than Infinity War. Uh, if you're putting these two together, I, I like this one a lot better because this is a lot of Infinity War is a lot of really noisy set pieces that just didn't look great. Um, this is a lot more of characters standing around for two hours and fifteen minutes talking about their feelings. Uh, and it moves exceedingly well somehow um, for what they're doing. I, and it's kind of broken up into these segments, which helps, I think. But also there's just, I mean, Thor talking to his mom or, right. you know, Cap talking to Falcon or, you know, all these little moments of, of people just talking to each other um, for, for the biggest chunk of the runtime. And then that last 45 minutes is just a uh, a fan service epic of, of set piece when it all comes together. And I think it lands all that. I think it nails all that. There are several emotional arcs that pay off very well in that final hour um, from the battle through the end. And I I think that all comes together really well. The performance is all great. I I like Paul Rudd being our entry point back into this. Spoiler for the five people who didn't see it. Um, When Paul Rudd does show back up, you know, long thought dead um, and, and kind of allowing us 
to follow his footsteps into this this new world uh, is very smart. And, and Rudd's so good uh, as a comedian, but also at carrying a lot of everyman uh, ethos with him uh, that you can connect with him really well. And so I, th- I think that's a big saving grace here rather than letting us follow the heroes or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, to see where Banner goes and to see where uh, all these different kind of characters land and the performances that follow with that, you know, Chris Evans has been a stalwart since the first Avenger. He's one of the best, I think, in this whole series. Uh, Downey uh, is as good as he's been in any of these movies. Um, and I think that helps sell all of this emotion and, and catharsis, you know, coming together. And, and it's the payoff. I mean, it's 11 years in the making, and there's a lot that could have went wrong. And, and I think that the Russos, probably more so here than in any of their efforts, were able to navigate all of that very well and bring it all together pretty seamlessly. Um, and, and I think, you know, their history in television writing uh, allows them quite a bit of flexibility and ab- being able to tell all of those stories because there's so much going on in this movie. And I'm never once confused. I'm never once uncertain of what's happening. Um, and, and so they, they nail that intertwining of like six or ten subplots, whatever. I mean, it's ridiculous how yeah. much is going on in this movie. Uh, and then that kind of mashed with this clip show of of finale when we're seeing all these kind of high points from from the series and some low points. I mean, the fact that they go back into the dark world, I think, is a pretty interesting beat because you know it's pretty well regarded as the least of these and so for them to be able to go back and pay off that emotional arc with thor uh, i think works really well and so i like those choices of which timelines they decide to go to and how they decide to subvert or work within those uh cap in the elevator is a great Mm -hmm. beat fun callback um cap versus cap is is a great i mean that whole 2012 sequence is is money i think it's a hoot yeah and then uh and then the moment with the hulk and uh, the ancient one i think works very well as well i think tilda swinton's really good here and that interaction with mark ruffalo who has been a heart of these ensemble pictures since he showed up in the avengers um i i think again some of the the better you know i it's, it's a strong ensemble. It really is. Yeah. All of those main casts are, are really strong here. There are a couple beats that still don't make sense for me, and it's mostly when they go to Vormir or whatever it's called, uh, when it gets down to ScarJo and Renner, because I, I, the logic of that scene doesn't make sense with what we've been presented so far, as far as what happened there with Gamora and, and Thanos. And so I'm not sure how that plays still. Um, from a character beat with with uh, Ronan, because that's that's really the penance moment I think for that character, and to not pull that trigger seems odd. Mm. Um, and, and I'm sure it'll be explained in some other movie or some show or yeah. some app or some comic book or some video game. You know, uh, really the world we're living in now. But um, overall, yeah, I, I have a lot of fun with this movie. I, I think it's a blast. It flies by at three hours, uh, and in the year of the long movie, um, I think it exceeds better than most um and so yeah i i, I love it I, I really do it's 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 a great movie all right thank you very much for that so dalton does this movie look good or does it look like melted ice cream you tell me well <clears throat> i'm gonna answer your question by talking about something else as i often do uh, arthur called this to your yep thank you uh that was that was your cue to to do that thank you <laughs> uh arthur called this the year of the long movie and he's not wrong uh there's a lot of long picture shows this year 
I was going to try to squeeze in Infinity War uh, this week. I uh, really wanted to try to watch these as one movie, but that didn't happen. I decided I had more important homework to do, and that was watch The Irishman. Uh, because, you know, if we're going to talk about this film, uh, we are going to have to talk about the existence of this franchise, right? Like, it, it does make it difficult to watch any of these movies without talking about it as a collective. And I, I think that is probably the biggest weakness of any Marvel film is that you have to look at it in context with what is essentially a long series of uh, film serials. That said, this is a cinema. In the sense that anything that is a picture show is a cinema, this is it. Um, and I guess that's the defense I have, because I watched The Irishman and this back-to-back -back or within two days of each other. And I got to tell you, I like this better than The Irishman. And it's not that I think The Irishman is a bad film, it, but it makes sense that it's on Netflix. It's overly long. It's overly self-indulgent. It's using special effects when it doesn't need to. Kind of like, you know, Endgame. Mm. They're both overly bloated budget uh, budgets. Uh, nobody quite knew how to sell The Irishman, so it ended up on a streaming service. But also, Endgame ended up on a streaming service. So, look, I think calling one thing a cinema and one thing not is just splitting hairs. And that was the experiment I wanted to try and do. And... uh uh, we should probably stop having this conversation at some point. It's been, uh, who knows, months now? It feels like years that we've been talking about this. Decades. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I thought it was important to to watch this next to Scorsese's most recent release, just, you know, for context. You know me, I love that context. And uh, I, I wanted to not like Endgame. I really went in uh, remembering our conversation last year, remember talking about Infinity War and my inability to defend it as important cinema and uh, I, I really wanted to go in to try and be mean to Endgame, but I had such a bad time watching The Irishman that the entire time I was just like, ah, I don't know what to tell you. This is a cleaner, more concise, more effective film. And they're both films about failure in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I guess the only reason I, I've chosen to present my review as such is, as I said, I don't really know how to talk about Marvel movies outside of their larger context because they are films that are pandering to me and my love of superheroes for my childhood and uh i would be stupid to not acknowledge that but i also uh i like crime movies i'm equally tricked by crime movies just as easily and uh, the irishman doesn't do anything for me uh it does some things for me i think there's some interest there but as arthur said endgame is a movie about conversations until it isn't <clears throat> and the irishman is also a film mostly about conversations and they're not very interesting conversations most of the time uh, every single conversation in Endgame has me wrapped. And sure, I've seen all these movies. I have emotional buy-in already. But to Arthur's point, there is a juggling act going on here of paying off literally eight different franchises. If not, I think I might have miscounted, honestly. It's probably more than that. Endgame has a big task ahead of it, just like The Irishman has a big task about it. It has to be a biopic for both Frank Sheeran and Jimmy Hoffa. And I don't think it's that successful. Endgame's really successful, at putting a punctuation mark at the end of a lot of different characters' stories, all of whom are fictional, sure, but all of whom have technically been alive longer than Jimmy Hoffa, if you want to split hairs. So if you can give me a nuanced picture of a person, regardless of whether or not that person's real, regardless of whether or not the circumstances of this fictional character is living in are real, that's a cinema, dude. I learned more about how I feel about failure watching Endgame than I did uh, about how I deal with failure watching Irishman. I think that is a testament to what the Disney company did, uh, what Marvel as a publishing house, then a film studio, then a subsidiary did with this franchise. 
it is a, a remarkable achievement in trying to tell stories. Uh, was it worth it? I don't know. Probably not. We'll get into that when we get into analysis, I guess. But uh, I don't know. I think it works as it is. I wish movies weren't changing, but everything changes. So what are you going to do? All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Now, this task is simply review of the experience of, to use Scorsese's term again, the ride. And I have to say, it is a great ride. Yeah, I is. like this movie. It's There's nothing in it that's not fun. Uh, and it does have a long runtime that doesn't feel long. And I would suggest that there are other long movies that don't feel lengthy. I'm looking at you, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as another possible example, which yeah. is another close to three-hour experience. 245, I think. Yeah, close to three-hour experience that you don't need to leave for um, in the same way that you feel like you might need to leave for what your experience The Irishman sounds like. Uh, and again, I'm not going to weigh in in that whole discussion as to, you know, let's put The Irishman right up because, I mean – that that's sort of the obvious sort of thing to do because it was Scorsese who made the uh, who made uh, the observation and it was sort of in reaction to the Joker film, which is picking up with some of his ideas and then you know definitely cribbing from some of his earlier works. I think really the 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 place of comparison for different kinds of movies or the or the scope of the spectrum might be last year's First Reformed versus this movie. So it's a new property, new idea, movie about conversations and uh, individual experiences and taking some ambitious narrative risks. This movie is doing the same kind of thing, but it's doing so – I mean it, it comes down to – if you're talking about literature, I mean it does feel like a literature conversation, like novels. Uh, so there's young adult literature, which is great and popular and really uh, – Formative for a lot of people, and they're fun reads, and they're enjoyable. And then there is difficult David Foster Wallace, Thomas Pynchon, you know, sort of postmodern, uh, turn on its uh, turn itself on its head. But you read some of those Harry Potter books, especially. I'm looking at this Time Turner um, escapade with. Uh, Hermione Granger, and it's not unlike what you might find in something like Gravity's Rainbow. It's not unlike something you might find in that Infinite Jest, and the ways in which you're sort of seeing these pieces and different characters and trying to figure out just how to get the uh, proper uh, result that you want to have happen. And it's not unlike, uh, but it's not unlike Endgame either. I mean, in, in some ways, it's a closer analog to Endgame. And the question is, though, is it enjoyable? Is it a thing that meets its audience as it names its audience? And as the sort of identified hailed spectator who is a fan of comic books who grew up reading them who owned the original run of the infinity gauntlet the first infinity gauntlet war th th yeah love this this is this is all fun and i i've got investment in not only in the characters writ large in terms of sequential art in the comic books but i've got investment in the actors playing these individual characters uh, that chris evans is my captain america that there's a way in you know uh, chris hemsworth is my thor uh, th that's paul rudd is my ant-man and there's a way in which I'm invested in their individual nuances and performances of those characters. And yes, indeed, the Bruce Banner that you encounter throughout the Hulk franchise is different and varied in different ways. But there's also a way in which I own that Ruffalo Hulk, and I want to see what happens. And I do feel as though the film did a great job in honoring those characters, doing something interesting with moving them forward and changing them in ways, the ways in which you know Hulk progresses, the way in which Thor regresses, the ways in which uh, uh, you know uh, Captain America is able to move on in terms of his grief, and the way in which uh, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow is arrested in that grief. And that's interesting. And the, the point counterpoints that the film's making, I think, are, are really, really fun. And again, good emotional payoff. And it's a movie that 
it still makes me cry the whole movie through. I, I'm as soon as the first scene, I guess we're going to avoid spoilers. Um, but as soon as that very, very first scene of Hawkeye and his family sort of meets its conclusion, I'm already crying. Yeah. And then I'm continuing to cry at moments throughout. Mm -hmm. it, it continues to meet me at an emotional place. And so, yes, it is big, fun, dumb, loud spectacle with lots of great special effects and really, really awesome, ominous spaceships coming out of nebula clouds of gas. Like, yes, that's very, very fun and very sort of huge, big theme park ride type cinema. But it's also got these character moments. And... So, yes, I enjoy it a lot. Are there problems with this movie? Yes, there are, and we will discuss them later. But as an experience, as a ride, I have fun every time I watch it, and I could watch it again today. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. pretty yeah. pretty happily. It's a cinema. Yeah, it, yeah it's it made out of movie, and uh, I like movies. And it is definitely doing all that it is doing the way it does it within the constraints and confines of its own genre, tropes, and conventions very, very well. So I'm a fan. There you go, dear listener. Um, our biases are quite pro, yet I'm interested to hear different things um, that we might say about this movie. Let's move on and expand the syllabus and talk about how you teach this in the class. I go to you first, Dalton. What do you do? Well, I'm pretty sure this is what we did last year. I'm not going to lie. I think this is the syllabus that I presented, uh, but we're going to go ahead and do it again. Uh, the name of the class is What's in a Cinema Anyway? Uh, I, I think the ultimate required reading for this course is going to be the Sadat Alanka, uh Road to Endgame uh, series that he wrote for Slash Film over the course of last year uh, and then republished this year in the run-up to Endgame. But I think each of those is, number one, just a really interesting uh, breakdown of the themes of each film, but then also discusses the, the things that we have to consider when we talk about movie making this big, right? Uh, this is a franchise that constantly is trying to uh, position its heroes as the ultimate good, but then also reminds uh, this these this series of articles reminds you uh, as a reader of these articles and a viewer of these films. These films are uh, some of them paid for by grants and uh, with with funding from the Department of Defense. The Pentagon helped finance quite a few of these movies, uh, chiefly among them Captain America. Uh, one and two, or mostly two, uh, Captain Marvel. There's a lot of assets being used. Yeah, yeah, there's a ton of assets being used from the Department of Defense, and you have to get the DOD to sign off on your screenplay to get that money, which is always going to impact the truth-telling of the films. Uh, because the MCU is a definitively post-9-11, post-war on terror franchise. And yet... The MCU seems to exist in America in which the War on Terror, terror stopped uh, after Iron Man. Uh, the War on Terror is kind of w the jumping off point for the MCU, but it seems like after Iron Man it just kind of ended because now they're supervillains. Because you've got, well, you've got an Iron Man. you got Iron Man. He privatized world peace, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think to really fully appreciate and talk about these films, we have to, you know, Meet Scorsese's challenge, right? He is, I think the argument really is less about the content of the films and more about the mechanics of the making. And that, that's Scorsese's point, right? He's afraid of this IP-driven storytelling. I am too. I, I It makes me nervous, right? That uh, the biggest, um, there's like three or four huge uh, original stories came out uh, Thanksgiving weekend, but Frozen 2 was the one that took home all the money. Uh, you know, these original stories had good box office showings, but more and more we are seeing that IPs are going to be driving things. So I think, uh, I, I don't think we, we would show a single Marvel movie in its entirety in this class. Uh, yeah, I think it's safe to assume 
anybody uh, in their mother has seen this movie. So, uh, yeah, we don't need to show it any of these films in their entirety in the class, but I think scenes would be helpful. Uh, and But I th- and breaking down the relationships these films have to violence and violence as a storytelling device uh, is powerful. So I think to stay in that context, you know, look at these articles, maybe watch a couple of scenes from each of the films, but really do the reading on the articles. And then, I don't know, look at uh, some films that kind of help us understand both superhero stories uh, and just violence as it exists in film a little bit better. And I think staying in the wheelhouse of Scorsese is just going to kind of help us to, you know, take these classical new Hollywood films of the 70s and 80s that Scorsese is, you know, uh, so famous and infamous for, uh, whether it's Raging Bull or Taxi Driver, even if you want to go up to the 90s and do Goodfellas, these are all films concerned with violence, concerned with men who think that they have the best ideas and that their violence will fix everything uh, that's going wrong for them. Uh, And then I think you pivot and uh, look at some superhero stories that pave the way for the MCU, things like Spider-Man 1, Blade, uh, and then maybe go to a Logan, a contemporary of the MCU, you know, a superhero film that exists outside of that franchise, but very much is informed by its place and culture. And uh, I, I think that's going to be the class is not is accepting the premise that the MCU is cinema because uh, who gives a shit? Uh, everything's a cinema. Uh, this podcast is a cinema. I don't care. Uh, it's not. it's not. It's not. You get the point that I'm trying to make, though. Uh, and and I think the conversation that you can have by comparatively looking at violence and thinking a lot about uh, the class Arthur posited for our last episode over the Nightingale, talking about violence in cinema. Uh, and I think maybe that would be a very similar path that this cat class would end up going down. Is just thinking about. How do we think about conflict? Because right, all storytelling has to involve some sort of conflict. And if we say in all of our stories that violence is the only way to face conflict, uh, or, you know, our our conversation as a human community is going to get a little less interesting uh, because we're going to be a little too obsessed with fighting each other, I think. Uh, so I think looking at stories that have a realistic take on violence, and you know, that is probably a, a quibble of Scorsese's, I would imagine, if you got him sat down. I think maybe the the wrestling or lack thereof with violence might distress him in these films, just based on some of the the very violent movies he has made. Um, But I, you know, I think looking at superhero films that are awash with violence, like Logan or a blade, you know, is going to be helpful in thinking about uh, how we depict super heroics, how we depict violence. Uh, And then of course I would probably show uh, some scenes from the new Watchmen television show. We'd probably look at some of those, uh, that interview uh, that Alan Moore did a couple of years back that I referenced on the show last week. Uh, I think all of that's going to be very helpful of framing for what do we talk about when we talk about superheroes? What do we talk about when we talk about superhero movies? And what do we talk about when we talk about movies? I, I think that's the class where it is more less what is good about the MCU and more what does the MCU say about us, say about filmmaking and say about uh, violence and culture. Uh, I think that's the class, if 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 it's anything. Uh, you know, it's, again, it, these are hard movies to talk about because they do exist as, I mean, pieces of corporate synergy at the end of the day. And, and I think breaking them open into their smallest components uh, and looking at the nuances of how they get made and what kind of messages they're pushing um, are going to be helpful to complicating the, these good and evil narratives that are getting pushed. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that. I think that'd be an interesting class, Dalton. Arthur, what class are you teaching with uh, this movie or the rest of the MCU? Yeah, I, I think the way I want to take this, and it kind of does come back to the Scorsese thing, and um, one of the through lines, definitely in online arguments, and not necessarily that it's from Scorsese, but in, in those online arguments is this idea that 
kind of anything within, you know, made by Disney or mm. made by studio can't be cinema, right? Yeah. There's that idea that studio films kind of exist as this factory made thing that don't really count for anything. Yeah, they're not art. Yeah. And, and so I think I'd go with the studio cinema class mm-hmm. and, and kind of look at some of the, and I'd probably maybe do some Boardwell, maybe do some classical Hollywood cinema stuff uh, just to kind of look into the the very assembly line aspect of the film. I mean, for decades, that was filmmaking until the new Hollywood, you know, until the 60s and 70s. Um, it was very much, you know, approved by committee and, you know, put together and you brought in journeyman filmmakers to get stuff done. You're having constant rewrites on the set. You're making your cast angry, but sometimes magic happens and these films stand the test of time and, and become influential on the people that follow them. And, and I think that's very easily the case with some of these Marvel films, maybe not all of them, but uh, Endgame is going to be a very influential. Film. I mean, it's, the MCU's already been very influential from a production standpoint. Oh yeah, and people watching these movies, kids watching these movies, are going to be inspired to make their own films and tell their own stories and work within these studios probably at some point. Uh, and so I'd probably go back uh, in time and I would work with the uh, the great auteurs. I'd work with Hitchcock. I'd say Rebecca, which is very much a studio film. It is very much. Um, David O'Selznick. Yeah, Selznick's film. Um, and there is that kind of butting of heads between Selznick and Hitchcock. Uh, but I think that there is something very artistic about that final product and what is birthed out of that. And at the very, you know, at the time, um, Hitchcock is just brought in as a journeyman director to to do this film for Selznick. And, you know, Selznick has a lot of control in that picture. Um, and it taught Hitchcock a, a lot about how to kind of finagle his way to make sure he got his way uh, in the way that he shot and the way that he directed. Um, but it is a studio product. And then from there, I'd probably go with Billy Wilder's uh, Sunset Boulevard, mm. you know, just a noir genre piece. That's not supposed to be much more. Uh, and, you know, the thing about it is the great directors step in and they could elevate the craft, you know, and that was what Wilder was able to do with something like Sunset Boulevard. Um, uh, one of the other through lines I keep seeing uh, about this is, you know, Scorsese's ragging on the Mar- MCU, but it's just like all the gangster picks and all this stuff. But people kind of forget that gangster picks and Westerns were B-movies. There wasn't a lot of artistic merit be held into those until something like Stagecoach come along. Yeah, there's a lot of dogs in the Western. I mean, yeah. that, that's the thing. It's like a lot of people say they like Westerns. They like those handful of good canonical Westerns. Yeah. It's not this because there's, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of dog food in there. I mean, the movies Scorsese was watching and loving weren't a-tier masterpieces they were just schlocky b-movies and to make that comparison to the marvels kind of a knock at the marvel films but people don't think about that when they make that argument uh the other film i'd go with is uh, casablanca mm-hmm. there is no better definition of studio picture turned masterpiece than this film that was coming together on the set when they were rewriting drafts of the script on the set and it is very much american propaganda in the midst of the war um but it has stood the test of time and is renowned as one of the great American films and very much a cinema, uh, you know, I think uh, for what it, I mean, it shouldn't have happened, but it was a perfect storm and it came together. And, and so I'd look at all that. And then if you want to get a little genre fair, I'd probably do something like, you know, 20th century Fox's alien from mm. Ridley Scott, a, a very influential film, just a studio horror movie. Can't be much more than that, but you got a guy like Ridley Scott who's able to do the work and uh, makes it stand the test of time. Yeah. And so that's probably the way I'd go with this and look at that through line of the studio and how, you know, sometimes those films work, sometimes they flop. And then 30 years later, someone's like, Hey, 
let's revisit this. And and this is kind of happening now, you know, movies like Speed Racer or, mm. or things of that nature, but it's happening a lot faster. And I think that's just because of the access to the content. We don't have to wait 10 years for a repository screening of a film. We can access it within three months and watch it as much as we want, which allows for that reaction to, to kind of happen a little quicker. But, you know, we, we won't really know where the influence of the MCU lands for probably another five to 10 years, I think, from a... Oh, yeah. you know, the way we re- look back on these films. Well, you've already talked about, you know, the generation of filmmakers that this franchise is going to inspire. And I think when that generation that grew up watching these movies is, you know, our age, when they're in their 30s and uh, 40s, that that's going to be the true test. Right, Arthur? I, th- I, th- I think you're absolutely right. We're not going to be sure for a while. And I, I think it, it's going to be how does this go on to inspire the next generation of writers and craftspeople? Because, um, yeah, I mean, Alien's a great example. Uh, I think Daniel Bannon's screenplay and H.R. Geiger's creature designs, like, it's not just the direction of that film. Like, Scorny yeah. Weaver's performance, like, top to bottom, it's just a lot of great work. Yeah. And say what you will about the MCU, there's good work in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dustin, what do you think? What are you going to teach? Okay, so I was thinking about this uh, quite a bit, you know, and I was thinking about the film itself, what you might do with it. But it got me thinking about the MCU, all 22 films of it. And I don't know quite how I would break out the syllabus, but I'm thinking about the entire semester, the entire course of a class, that you would make a decision because there's a class that is a standard undergraduate course, which is Introduction to Film Studies. And so it's it's a class in which there's two purposes, it seems, that work. Uh, You read a bunch of the uh, seminal essays, you know, about auteurism, about technology, about uh, theories of the avant-garde, theories of genre, and again, sort of critical lenses, Marxism, structuralism, um, psychoanalysis, etc., and you, you know, sort of Laura Mulvey's, you know, uh, visual pl- pleasures and narrative cinema, you're going to look at Rear Window. That's going to be the movie because that's kind of the movie that that uses. And the way in which the course as an experience works out is it is a two-parter in which you're reading a lot of essays and trying to figure out some of these theoretical concepts. Usually you leave with a definition or two in your pocket. And then you watch all of these movies, which, again, for the standard undergrad audience, most of the movies have not been seen. And so it works in a way as like a film appreciation course, like a music appreciation course would work in high school. Yeah, yeah okay. You're exposing these students to these movies that they haven't seen and sort of giving them a, a better idea of what the scope of what Hollywood cinema specifically or just cinema in general. Although there's usually a, a moment where you pay attention to like the uh, uh, European art house cinema you know, movement. But it's not super, super international, typically, the way these courses are put together. But I thought, what if you just simply abandoned the film appreciation section? And really wanted to bear down on the theoretical concerns about language in terms of editing. If you really wanted to bear down on, on terms and discussions in terms of auteurism and the, the, the commerce of auteurism. If you really wanted to bear down on issues about technology and the development of special effects, star studies, Robert Downey Jr., etc. And just simply just said, we're just going to do those theoretical concepts. That's all you're going to learn. And we're going to use the movies you already know. We're just going to use the MCU movies and then construct the class as you normally would with bits of uh, classical Hollywood cinema from Boardwell, you know, the big essays from Mulvey. There's plenty of male gaze. I'm, I'm looking at you opening scene of uh, Avengers when Scarlett Johansson's tied up. Um, there, there's plenty of stuff to be done there. Yeah, Iron yeah. Man 2. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You get in there with uh, this, uh, Can the Subaltern Speak? Uh, get that with Black Panther. Yeah, yeah there's absolutely. a lot of yeah, classic. Yeah, Black- Film, film studies, yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff. You could, you know, post-colonial studies using Doctor Strange. Well, uh, you could Doctor Strange, Thor Ragnarok, and uh, Black Panther, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's ways in which you could find your way into that and just abandon, again, and I'm not sure I'm 
totally on board with the suggestion I'm making, but I'm just I, I'm going at it with full tilt. Uh, I'm I think full, it'd be a good class. I, I'm committing to it, but I, in terms of what I'm suggesting for you all, but I don't know necessarily if it's a great idea because. Yeah, maybe you ought to make kids watch Psycho because they haven't seen it. Maybe you ought to make students, you know, pay attention, watch Stagecoach because I'm certain, unless they happen to have the dad that I had, <laughs> didn't grow up watching it. You yeah, know, you know what I'm saying? Not my exact dad, although I mean I'm sure there are many other kids who he's the father to. Uh, but <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> my point being, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get you know what I'm saying. I get you. Uh, so. I think that would be a way in which, and then really, really bear down on the theoretical concepts of introduction to film studies. And so that's, that's my suggestion. And then when we come to Endgame, the particular avenues of film studies that I think I would want to look at, and again, this would be the end of the semester, obviously, um, that I would pick up um, uh, Gunning's uh, Cinema of Attractions. And go back to how this is maybe re coming back to ideas of spectacle and uh, of an event and, and, and film in that kind of sense. Uh, and, and the way in which he's working with Eisenstein, you know, to do that kind of thing. I would, I would look there. I think I'd look at Philip Jenkins' uh, Transmedia Storytelling to sort of be the meta thing of what we're doing here. As sure. We're talking about all this stuff, video games and comic books and television series and now Disney Plus and mm -hmm. the way in which there are all these platforms and methods of experience that um, his essay about The Matrix, I think, in, in equal ways applies uh, to the MCU and Endgame in particular. And then finally, I No think, Matrix, no MCU, baby. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, the last thing I think is I'd pick up old Louis Althusser and I would talk about the ideological state apparatus and the ways in which these things do function all together. And we have been probably would have been hinting at this throughout the entirety of the semester, but to really spend a whole lot of time um, looking at American global capitalist um, ideology and how that these texts, although they make nods to sort of escape from that, they remain really part of the hegemony of society. Well, that's why I think Sedonalak is a essay series mm -hmm. is so important, because it gets into a lot of that. It gets into ignoring that ass the, the fact that these stories uh it, within the context of the mcu often ignore exactly what you're talking about yeah uh, and even when they do make nods and make corrective moves later on in the franchise they still one step forward two steps back mm -hmm. we'll give you a captain marvel which is you know about how important it is to be accepting and welcoming of refugees while at the same time when that movie came out uh, captain marvel's uh you know original team not doing so good with that no so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think you and me are kind of sniffing at the same tree on that one. Yeah, and, and, and again, just sort of using the end. I mean, I don't know if it's a great idea or not, but it's an, it's an idea. It's, yeah. Instead of like, okay, now you have to watch Sunset Boulevard like you've mentioned before, which is a film noir, sort of. It's slow. It's metacinematic in ways that references movies that, again, many of the uh, students won't know. And so maybe the metacinematic is better to be used within the MCU in which it Easter eggs itself. Mm. Like that might be a way in which you help a student at least wrap their brain around that concept instead of you saying, well, let me tell you about I'm ready for my close-up now, Mr. DeMille, and what that means, and here's the history of Cecil B. DeMille films. Mm. And instead, well, okay, here are the Easter eggs. You know these bits and pieces. You know this, you know, how this stuff kind of works. You can So you can look at Wanda's bedroom um, there at, at the uh, Avengers headquarters when she's talking to Vision and see that there's a magneto helmet designed little picture frame in a little curio bookshelf like oh so that's what you're supposed to realize and that's in a way well really is that a thing in there yeah yeah there's a, there's, there's, there's a thing on our bookshelf that looks like magneto's helmet tight which is cool um 
anyway, so th- like those little bits and pieces yeah. where they're where they're being playful, and again, like uh, Frederick Jameson's um, logic of late capitalism, uh, this idea of what is postmodernism, mm. that would be interesting uh, to use the MCU to just sort of. Again, uh, give up on that sort of bit of knowledge acquisition for students and really just make them suffer and learn through these concepts of continuity editing, mm. uh, storytelling, uh, technological advances, star studies, industrial studies, uh, theoretical critical lenses, etc. So that would be generally what I might do. Well, I think the thing that all three of us have hit on is th- there's a utility to something like the MCU or any like really mass media, su- just hugely successful film is people have seen it. Mm-hmm. And you can use that to things that people have already seen to kind of make them think about filmmaking and film watching a little bit harder. Because I do think it's a problem students have is like, I'm trying sure. to, I'm trying to figure out the plot. Okay. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who's the foil? It's like, okay, so we got uh, Humphrey Bogart, Sam Spade and, and Mary Astor is not a good person, but she's also the love interest. And and then Peter Laurie's who, and Sidney Greenstein Greenstreet's who, and you know does Greenaway. Gre- Peter Greenaway is directing. Uh, <laughs> that'd be the weirdest, most Maltese amazing Falcon. Maltese Falcon ever. But you know the way yeah. you're playing with all that stuff, I, I think maybe it's an easier way in. And then, you, of course, you're going to use little clips from bits and pieces of the, of the things from the essay. It's like, okay, well, when we're talking about this gay stuff, here's, here's, here's like the key scene from Rear Window. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be like an hour and a half long class. It's got to be a you know, twice a week class. It can't be a once a week class because yeah. you don't have enough time. But once you do that, yeah, might could be done. So there you go, dear listener. Um, our thoughts are um, lengthy uh, regarding how we might expand the syllabus using this film uh, because we have a lot of thoughts on this entire franchise. It's near and dear to all of our hearts. So let's get down to some business and bring you some analysis. It's business. It's business time. I what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business That's right, dear listener. This is what we're all here to do. And there are many, many analytical frameworks to get into. And I guess – I think we've already established that we agree this is cinema, and uh, we know what Marty's upset about, but whatever. I mean, do we have anything more we want to add to that before? I have other things. He's an old crank. Uh, yeah. I love old. the guy, but uh, I think he's gotten to the old crank phase of his life, and, you know, we're all going to get there. Hopefully he, we'll, we'll do it more gracefully. I mean, I, I think industrially, I think he's making an interesting point. Yes, and uh, I think he's right in some respects. We got to have these low budget movies. We got to have movies like First Reformed. Yeah. And this this franchising and intellectual property sort of, you know, continually churning out all this stuff over and over again is a threat to denying this other sort of mode of uh, address that is in um, independent cinema. But I think at the same hand, uh, Disney's need to be as uh inclusive as it possibly can because it's a you know multinational multi-billion dollar corporation it is unprofitable for them to not be inclusive i think that creates a space where filmmakers who otherwise might not have gotten exposure now have the opportunity to make whatever damn movies they want right and i think that's pretty cool mm-hmm. um so you know uh, i'm a, a very mixed mind about this kind of stuff but uh yeah i, I think we've set our piece on marty yeah okay well let, then let's move on shall we um, I want to discuss a little bit of, in this particular film, just the idea of the spoiler and spoiler culture a little bit. Because that was one of the things. Everybody's like, oh, you can't say anything. And, and like there was massive you know, Twitter, social media yeah. kind of advances there. And the way in which we have developed appointment uh, viewing 
and spoiling as just part of the conversation regarding films now. Well, and, you know, there's no water cooler TV shows anymore, right? Like, television has become this kind of niche thing where maybe you know, like, three other people who like the show that you're into. Yeah. But, you know, you go to work on a Monday morning, everybody saw the damn uh, Marvel movie that came out that weekend before, and it gives people something to talk about. It's Cheers yeah. now, exactly. You know, or we, we exactly whatever uh, NYPD Blue, yeah, whatever people talked about at work thirty years ago was probably a TV show because there was only five channels, and so now there's only five movies that come out a month, so or at least five movies that more than twelve people go see. So I, I think there's something to that, and it's it's interesting to watch. You know, Disney basically run a uh, an intelligence operation keeping this. Spoilers locked down on this movie, so nobody could figure out was essentially pretty easy to figure out. Like you go, I walk out of Infinity War, and I knew plenty of people who were like, "So the next movie is a time travel movie, right?" Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I knew plenty of people who said that immediately. Uh, and these are not people who are internet detectives who think a lot about the MCU. They just have seen a, a film before. It's just logic. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, or they're going to get the stones and just reverse it somehow. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but I, th- I think that there's something interesting. Like Arthur's synopsis of this is a more effective selling point for Endgame than I think anything Disney. Disney was so afraid of spoilers on this uh, that, uh, you know, they didn't tell anybody anything about it. But Arthur, just uh, in his synopsis at the start of the show, I think gave us more context for what this movie is about than any of the marketing and yet was more vague than any of the marketing for this film. So I, I like your synopsis, Arthur. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, but I just just let us know that the next movie is going to take place five years later. Like, why are you pretend? Just, it's okay. Like, nobody mm-hmm. cares. It's yeah. This obsession with spoilers is... It's frustrating, and it, it, it makes you wonder if somebody at the studio somewhere knows that the films they're making might be a little hollow at the end of the day. So if you know what's going to happen going in, they're going to be a little bit less fulfilling. Um, that's what it makes me think about it. Anyway. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I personally, I mean, I'm, I've never been a person that cares about spoilers. And I, mean, I knew. I just you know, What's going to happen is they're going to fix it. You yeah. know, will some characters die? Yes. yes, because I'm also aware of the conversation in terms of whose contracts are up yeah. and who's not signing up for more. And I know, okay, so they're going to find a way to either retire a character or, you know, kill a character, yeah. you know, in order to do that. I mean, mostly Chris Evans and uh, Robert Downey Jr. is who I'm thinking about. Yeah, those are the big two. But then. And a bunch of nameless Wakandans. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of a lot of deaths here. A lot of people, a lot, a lot of people with no name get killed in this movie, right? And, and then, of course, you know the dusting itself. It's like, well, I, we know these guys are coming back. Yeah. I mean, the Spider-Man movie was already licensed; it was already yes. there. So exactly. You, you know that they're going to figure out a way to hit the reset button yeah. here, and that that this movie's designed to do that. And so, I don't know why spoilers really matter. You know, in that kind of case, I mean, yes, the way in which it happens with Falcon coming in on the radio and saying on your left, like it's a great great moment. And yes, I mean, I would not want to know that before he did that the first time. I didn't, I didn't want to know the first time I watched this movie that cap was going to pick up the hammer. I want that moment to be fresh and something that I get, get to be surprised by. I get what you're saying. Yeah, you you want to be surprised by that kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, like that doesn't ruin. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think those bigger plot beats you know i don't i'm I'm with dustin i don't care so much about most of the time someone tells me the spoiler i'm more interested to see how we get there same how it happens yeah like especially if it's something out of left field you know Mm -hmm. but i I think if your movie's good it's going to stand on its own regardless i mean if your movie relies on whatever's being spoiled then it's probably not a very good movie you made a bad movie yeah yeah i I think it's six cents all the time you know six cents is notorious for its twist and that ending and I think that movie works so well, even if you know the ending. I mean, I watched it recently, and it still holds up. And mm-hmm. is surprisingly, how well it works, uh, and partially is because uh, it, there's an element to it 
to now watch to see the clues. Yeah. And, and I think even with Endgame, you know, with something like this, there's that element because now you can start listening for the foreshadowing. You know, the dialogue has a much deeper meaning now. The uh, mise-en-scene has a much deeper meaning. You know, things said, things shown all have a much more important focus when you know where it leads. Um, but it, it's a weird culture. Uh, I, I was thinking about this earlier. You know, I went through Game of Thrones earlier this year yeah. um, for the first time. And some of that stuff I had been alluded. I, I kind of knew things would happen. I kind of knew things, people would be gone or yeah, I didn't know when or where or how, but I, you know, I knew it's kind of the nature of the show that you don't really fall in love with anybody because they're not going to be around long. That's kind of the joke. Um, but it was so weird how people would have these conniption fits about Avengers being spoiled, but I'd go online the night of, the new Game of Thrones episode and people are posting every spoiler on the show, like in GIF form or yeah. like, mm-hmm. like it's, it's a weird reaction, you know, and how it's handled because we're about to have the exact same thing happen in two weeks when, when the Skywalker ar- rises, um, <laughs> it's going to be the exact same yeah. atmosphere mm-hmm. online. Sure. And, and you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, but it, it's weird what people will or won't, talk about and what they do or don't hold precious as far as spoilers and it's just a weird culture fandoms are interesting that way yeah and there's people that are like you can't spoil this movie it's been 40 years if you don't know i'm sorry like yeah well I, and I the moratorium know. seems to be like the moment of release and once it's in the world then it doesn't matter anymore which I, again i mean well I, disney did this whole they like kept a they wouldn't let any of their uh, cast or crew members like talk about the movie the until like, a month out yeah, yeah i mean they, they i mean encouraged fans to keep quiet and not ruin it for other yeah. fans and fans did what they were told which yeah. is interesting and, i mean the other thing it's weird because this is one i mean we you know we occasionally get screenings to movies and yeah. disney's one we get screenings to almost every time but uh both of these infinity war and Endgame were not screened in this market, which is, you know, kind of interesting as well. You know, there's limitations on what they want getting out. Yeah. Same with Rise of the Skywalker. It won't screen here, but it'll screen other places. But I think it does come back to this idea of the uh, of the movie as the ride. I think this is sure. th- this is why I connected to the Martin, Martin Scorsese thing is because it is that experience yeah. and it is that appointment. You don't experience. want to know where the corkscrews and the loop de loser are at. You want to be surprised by them, right? And, and but you and, see them coming, and the way we ride on, <laughs> you the... walk up to it, <laughs> you see the layout. Yeah, it's like yeah, you, uh, yeah, you already know, but you don't know, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that's that. that and that's... knowing doesn't affect my ride. Yep. No, it doesn't. And, and we'll quote April Wolf once again, as we often do, or I often do. It's not about what happens, but how it happens, y'all. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And so, but I do think um, that is, the, I think spoiler culture does sort of tie into this concept that, that Scorsese is trying to point to, that, yeah. that they are rides. Yeah. That, that, and, and that they are um, shared social rides. And, yeah. uh, and until everybody's gone through the line the one time and had their first time through riding the ride, you don't want to talk too much about it. But I mean, it, that's the blockbuster experience. I don't true. think it's relegated to the MC. I mean, we're yeah. talking about a, a culture that's gone back to 77 when Star Wars came out. Yeah. I mean, and Jaws. Uh, you know, this idea of these event films is nothing new. Mm. It's just, for some reason, a bunch of people have taken up the flag of Disney and and, mm-hmm. and have made it something more highly elevated than other blockbusters? Yeah. Maybe because the only blockbusters we get are Disney films? Yeah, people like Disney for some reason. Who who can know? Childhood, maybe? I don't know. It's I weird. Mean, that's why I do. Yeah, probably. Well, but, you know, I, again, it's it's less that we know Cap picks up the hammer, right? And more Thor screaming, I knew it. I knew it. That's and so that's great. great. That's, a, that's the moment, right? It's feelings. And I think... Yeah. 
we can talk all the shit we want about the corporatization of, of film, you know, the further corporatization of film, right? That, you know, Disney's going to own every movie that ever, was ever made. But at the end of the day, these are movies about feelings, uh, all films should be about feelings. And I think this film sells its feelings, right? And I, you know, who cares who knows what, when, what? Uh, it, it matters that the characters react in a manner that is believable to how they've been set up, that is, you know, paying off something, right? And, uh, you know, I think the feelings, and this would be a good pivot point. Does, does anybody have any other further thoughts on spoilers before we pivot? Nope. Well, let's talk about failure then, right? Yes. Uh, because that's uh, a, a quibble that, Dustin really had with Infinity War, and I think uh, we all ended up kind of uh, agreeing with him more or less, is that, you know, it, you know they're going to win. So what's mm-hmm. the point of ending on this big, somber cliffhanger when we know that they're going to win in the next one? Well, I think the point is you get to start your next movie with the heroes not knowing they're going to win. And I think that's pretty special. There's something to uh, this pair of films, uh, letting one be a gigantic downer ending and you make a million people uh, a billion people wait for an entire year to see how that downer is going to play out i think that's pretty cool and you go into that next movie and you let your crew of characters be real you accept that the story you're telling is real for the people inside of it and you let them feel like they can't win and uh, i think that explores some ground that superhero movies don't explore very often um, you know, the, the idea that Cap, uh, <laughs> doesn't shave his depression beard until like a month after all of his friends died is really interesting. Like his first scene being, uh, San's beard from the last movie is, you know, this is how he's coping, right? Is pretending he's, he's doing okay and leading the support groups. Yeah. Uh, you know, Natasha's pretending she's okay by freaking out about everything. She's, she is taking Tony's role as the one who is afraid uh, for everyone's Starting. safety at all times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, letting um, the arguments that uh, Captain America and uh, Iron Man have in, like, Civil War and Avengers 2 kind of come to a head at the start of this film uh, is really interesting, right? Like, Tony finally gets to be like, I told you. I told you. we, I told you. Mm-hmm. I told you we should have built a giant defense system, but nobody listened to me. Um, uh, you know, that's interesting. How do, how do you guys feel about, like, failure in this film? Do you believe it? I mean, I do believe the sense of failure. I do, yeah. I do believe the emotional payoff yeah. of the failure. But again, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's the middle movie of the franchise thing. It's Empire Strikes Back. It's uh, sure. Matrix Revolutions. It's, it's going to be yes, Neo's on the table, but we know he's going to be back for the movie. Yes, Luke failed in his confrontation with Darth Vader, but you know he's coming back. Han Solo's not going to stay in the Carbonite. Yeah, but they don't spend over two thirds of Return of the Jedi letting Luke and Han and Leia right. feel I, like. They let everyone down. Yeah, it's a different adventure there. I mean, it, it, it immediately begins with rescuing right yeah. uh, Han Solo uh, in Return of the Jedi. So I, I do think the way in which it plays it out, it works. And I do like this idea of this encounter, this moment that th- these these movies, which are so much about fantasy, so much about imagination, so much about that which is not the real, and this is where my Lacan comes in, that the deaths of these other characters is the sort of unnameable, unsymbolized encounter with the capital R real. It is the big other that uh, sort of defies your symbolic order, your language system, and you've got to find new ways to construct it. You've got to find new ways to find out how to exist and navigate, and that the symbolic 
fails. I like this, that, that the way in which they have re-narrativized and sort of tried to find their way back to normal, which in the symbol of the beard or the symbol of um, Natasha's sort of obsessive controlling kind Thor's of Thor's alcoholism. Thor's alcoholism. That the, all of those are preventing the the symbolic from really finding a new kind of equilibrium, that it remains the traumatic, traumatic event. It remains uh, the the thing that bothers them that is going to continue to make them symptomatic, right? Uh, again, the very, very Freudian reading I'm giving this right now, um, that it continues to do that kind of thing to it. And I, and I like that because I do think um, our own lives, our own traumas are that, that we all have dusted moments. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's part of why it works is that, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously we did not experience a cosmic, you know, supervillain, you know, snuffing out 50% of all living population on the planet or on the in the universe. Yeah. I mean, the sort of godlike science fiction moment. But we do these have these moments where we have the unspeakable, unnameable, ununderstandable. What happened? They turned to dust. Did they die? I guess they died. Did they, you know, cease? What is what is it that we experience there? And then what is normal now and that we all are now inscribed with, again, using Lacan's terms, our lack. Yeah. The big other is the lack. And so when they have the uh, the support group talking about they talk about how they miss the Mets. Yeah. Like that's what has been inscribed upon the real um, sort of moment showing up provides now now there's something missing and we cannot figure out ways to replace and move forward from that and so that's i think pretty powerful and again weirdly lacanian um and so sorry for putting on my psychoanalysis hat for a second there but i think it's helpful right because at the end of the you know we get to the end of the movie and uh thanos uh from 2014 is like oh i see why this didn't work you idiots can't be thankful for what i'm giving you Mm -hmm. and it does play with some you know pretty standard storytelling ideas about tyrants but you know an interesting idea of like you just you can't just make people do what you want them to do like that's not how beings sentient beings don't work that way you can't just tell them that you're going to do this and then thank you for it yeah you can't accept it yeah no because i i think uh, as you said we all have our traumas that we're not going to get over and if we see an ability to heal our wounds we're going to try to chase that Mm -hmm. that uh, that healing you can't just tell people let me hurt you and get over it right like that's uh i don't know i i like uh I like how evil they let Thanos be in part two. Real mm-hmm. big fan of that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I like that you put on your, uh, your psychoanalysis hat because I think there's a lot of uh, grief going on in this film. And I think it is part of what makes the first half of the film so strong is it just gets to be like the leftovers for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I, I do also am interested in, and I don't know quite what I think of it, the way in which that moment of grief allows the movie to sort of gesture at uh, certain inclusivities. Ooh, yeah. Because yeah. that's I think that's a mistake. So we have the character that's talking about the date that he's finally gone on after five years. It's one of the Russos. I can't remember which one. Yeah. Is it one of the Russos yeah. themselves? And so it's it, it's, uh, it's a gay man. Yeah. And, and I think so, that got edited out for Chinese audiences, probably. if I remember it. I don't. I heard that. I can't remember. But yeah, it's... I don't doubt it's it. It's a very Disney gesture towards inclusivity. Well, so this guy just happens to be gay, and yeah. you know, and, and, and Cap just says, well, that's great, man. You know, yeah. the, the important thing is that you went, yeah. and the important thing is that you've got a second date, and, you know, moving on, yeah. right? And uh, th- then there's like a little mini speech that uh, Captain Marvel gives in which she says, what's happening here is happening in all kinds of other places. Don't get so locked down into your own sort of myopic. If it doesn't happen in America, it doesn't happen anywhere else kind of thing. Yeah. And there's sort of this globalism that is, again, being gestured towards. But we're not seeing any of that. No. And we're not seeing any of those struggles of 
people who are wrestling, not necessarily wrestling with um, their sexuality, but just the differences of sexual experience, that that somehow that made it all okay. I don't think that's the world that they're living in. I, I don't. Uh, that, there's no reason. There's no indication that this planet, this new planet Earth, is going to be suddenly, you know, um, utopia, utopian woke for LGBTQ rights, uh, and it, that suggestion irritates me. Well, it, you know, it's a lot of very smart people who's. You know, I'm not going to try to be uh, the, the smartest person in the room anywhere, but a lot of very smart people had complaints about the the girl power moment that at the yeah. end of the finale, yeah. and that's the same kind same, of thing, same, right? Like, same gesture, yeah. Okay, Pandering. You're exactly. Yeah. Like, okay, look, it is cool that there are a lot of female superheroes yeah. in this movie, but not a one of them had anything interesting to do in the film except die. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, that's, in the last one, yeah, or not well, show up, right? Exactly. Like that's it, it's it, it is a. A moment that feels very patting on the back for this franchise that does not feel earned. And it's, yeah, it leaves a bad taste. In in theaters, like, the first watch, I was like, well, isn't that nice? That's nice. But, yeah, the more I've thought about it, the more I've read some smart things people have said about that scene. I'm like, man, it is kind of troubling. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. it it is just, it's pandering. Yeah. And that's not, that's not good. (laughs) Pandering is not a good thing. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we should demand more from our entertainment. Uh, in that regard, look well, at us. Look at us do good. Yeah, look at us assemble the women. Yeah. Girl power. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It only took you a, an entire movie to let Evangeline Lilly, who's one of the most interesting characters in Ant Man, do anything. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or in a completely or tertiary. Wanda. Yeah, yeah. Wanda's man. Wanda's best moment in this franchise and in this movie. Yeah, it is. And yeah, that's sad. Is. That's yeah. a bummer. Uh, I'm excited for her TV yeah, show. That'll probably be cool. Yeah. She's going to be in the new Doctor Strange. That'll I'm, probably be cool. I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm mad about, again, going back to our gay character, is yeah. that this is just a side note, you yeah. know, wink. And no, earn that. And what, what you were saying earlier is like, I, I, I really do want Brie Larson's Captain Marvel to be out. Same. You know, that's, I mean, that's what you, you need to do. Instead of like playing around, kind of gesturing at it, being worried that who's going to be mad about it. Yeah, I mean, sure. It looks like Captain America is going to be African American now, um, which is cool. But again, it, it all of it feels like a gesture rather than actually doing anything, rather than really sort of making us suffer under the way. Because honestly, Falcon's blackness is incidental. The character is the least black of all the characters. You know, uh, of, of of African American descent, um, in 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 the franchise, there the the Sam Jackson sort of wears his African Americanness in a different way than the way in which the dialogue and the writing for Falcon's character is just he happens to be, as this Russo um character just happens to be gay. Yeah. I, instead of really, I get what you're saying. instead of letting that lived experience be really lived in in terms of the character, and so I mean a much more interesting uh. You know, turn would be a character with the baggage and history of a Sam Jackson playing a Captain America. Yeah. Now that's interesting. Well, it's it's the same kind of thing with you know I think a, a reason to be a little frustrated with you know Black Widow throughout this franchise, right? Is like this is an interesting character, and hopefully her movie's good. But you know, this is a character who has experienced a lot of trauma in her life, and mm-hmm. this franchise doesn't really deal with it in any meaningful no. way. Uh, and it, then she just goes off. Yeah, she goes off a cliff. And it's it's a bummer. Like, and it's it's supposed to it is supposed to be sad. Yes, but they killed the character that's had like kill Hawkeye. Sure, that TV it show makes will be good. sense. It makes so much more sense. Right, he's become evil. He From says the, it himself. Yeah. It's the searchers at that point. I'm not I mean, he, fit for society after anymore. this moment. He just gets to go back home to his family and like nothing happened. He murdered so many. Like they intimate he slaughtered. Yeah, like hundreds uh, of people. Yeah, Don Cheadle's character. What's Don Cheadle's character's name? Uh, Rhodey. Yeah, War Machine. Rhodey. I was trying to think. Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. Rhodey. Rhodey. Like straight up. Like 
implies that he mutilated these the corpses of these cartel yeah. guys. And it's just like, you want that guy to go back home? For five years. These guys have just been on the loose. Just doing murders. All of them. Yeah. I don't... Oh, boy. But he, he, he gets to wash his hands and go home. Yeah, it's not... The film doesn't punish him, right? Like, he's no better than Thanos. It's a weird choice. It is a, a deeply dumb choice. Maybe I, it'll I, be answered with this Black Widow movie or TV show, but it's it, a weird choice. It doesn't. Oh, I'm cares. not a fan. Same. I'm not either. Um, you know, but it's... Uh, I, I want to... Let's talk about something interesting, I guess, since uh, we're talking about characters who don't get a lot to do. I think mm. maybe we should talk about Iron Man and Captain America, because they get the most to do in this film, emotionally. Yeah. Um, because they finally get to trade sides, right? Like, that's been the whole paired character arc for these two, right? Yeah. Is it starts off with Tony's never going to be the guy to jump on the, the resilient hero yep. versus the underdog who doesn't back down from a fight. Yeah. The small dog with the big bark. Yeah. And, yeah, over the course of this franchise it's been interesting to see how those characters have drifted together and then those paths crossed and then their ideology come down on much different sides i mean 180s for both of them i mean we look at this in civil war i think is a big notable turn where you know iron man who was fully rebellious in in the early days of this franchise becomes a partner of the state Mm -hmm. whereas cap is like nah this ain't cool yeah This, this isn't this isn't what i signed up for this is a step too far, and we see them go their separate ways, and we've we've got it kind of back here now. I I think where it's fully formed out, and then this resolution of, of Endgame. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, right? Because they let uh, Iron Man, uh, you know, they don't really deal with the, his substance issues that as they exist in the comics, but they kind of swap swap them out for like anxi- anxiety PTSD and PTSD. And, yeah. yeah, and I I think that's like an interesting thing for him, and you know, Iron Man three and Avengers two and Civil mm-hmm. War to have this guy stop being so cocksure because he has seen war finally right and his buddy who is a war vet is like yeah dude this is just what fighting is like it's not good yeah it's never good why do you think i want out <laughs> yeah. right. and i think that's the interesting thing right is tony finally has to get over his ego and say it's not about me i'm not the only one who can save people i gotta jump on this grenade i gotta do it and cap finally accepts that like i am allowed to retire I am allowed to be happy. And, yeah. uh, that's, it's interesting to have a, a character defined by his uh, two characters, one kind of defined by his hedonism and his ego, and another character defined by his uh, aestheticism. Or I guess. selflessness. Selflessness and aestheticism. Yeah. And see, see a film say selflessness can be its own selfishness, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're just hurting yourself. You're just trying to like abuse your own body for reasons that you think are noble. And yeah. I, I think that's a valuable thing about this film is letting, letting these damn actors retire for, for starters, but also letting these characters have happy endings, mm-hmm. I think is, uh, is nice. Like I, I you know, who knows where this franchise is going to go five, 10, 15 years from now, but I like ending a film, uh, with this much history and this much baggage and, you know, something resembling a nice place. I think mm-hmm. it's, there's some, some value in t- telling a story that says, Okay, no, we're not going to make these characters fight forever because there's no satisfaction in that. We have comic books that do that already, and it's you know it's hard to keep telling those stories for eighty years. Right? Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I do like those arcs and moving them back together. But I do want to think about the sort of uh, ideology thing. I'm thinking about Althazer, and I, I've ta- I've told you guys this before. I don't believe I've said any of these words on air, so this is this is my part of my controversial read okay. of of the Avengers in general. Is that I, I do think in some ways it is an allegory of the bomb, right? That the, that the, that the infinity gauntlet yeah. itself is the nuclear That's bomb. That's where you left us last year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I, and I think the movie continues to move in that same, 
um, uh, you know, uh, deterrent sort of structure. If the right people have the biggest Who's weapon. got the nukes? Yeah. Who's got the nukes? If the right people have the nukes, everything will be okay. And sometimes you've got to use them. I mean, the way the thing ends up resolving itself is that this guy had the nuke and terrible things happened. Now we've got to get it because we're the good guys, you know, to have it. And then we're using it not just – and this is this is where it really breaks down for me. If all that we had was the first snap in which we brought everybody back and they fought the battle and they won the battle and they moved on. But they can't win the battle unless Iron Man does the Thanos thing to Thanos' people. Yep. He, un- unless he Hiroshima's them. Yep. But it's not. It's it's okay because the good guys did the genocide the good, this time. Yeah, the good guy. And again, I mean, those are all terrible. I mean, you know, they're they're clearly one dimensional, awful. You know, we don't like Black Maw. We don't like any of these other sort of side characters that that are associated with. I Thanos. see Ebony Maw actually. Ebony Maw, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I just pushed up my glasses real hard. Gosh. Yeah, I agree though. Right, the, all the villains except for Thanos are pretty one note. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even Thanos in this film is, uh, you know, be- becomes the comic book character who is, you know, nihilistic and death obsessed. Right. And less of that sort of, you know, grieving for his daughter when he kills Gamora. And, that, yeah. you know, all that sort of uh, depth of character that we saw in the other one. But he does become this one dimensional, simple villain. And the, the thing is, is that what we've got to do is we've got to do the worst possible thing because that's the only option. It does. It creates this this world of extremes is that if there's if, if we're going to have nukes, we may need to use them and we just need to make Make sure that the good guys have them and none of the bad guys have them because we may need them. And instead of saying what could be done to create a situation, a set of situations in which their use would be utterly unnecessary. You know, that's that's the yeah. creative work. But that's not that isn't, again, defend state ideology. This is where Althusser comes in. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> well, it's you know, it. It's it's a more interesting story, uh, but it's not a comic book movie, and that's no. the, uh, that's why you know when I was talking about expanding the syllabus, I like the idea of maybe you take a, a you know an action scene from an Avengers film, and then you pair it with a horrifically violent action scene from something like uh, Logan, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you want to not use a superhero movie. I don't know, maybe you were never really here. You know, I, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Just something very unpleasant. An action yeah. scene that is less cool. Um, and I, you know, I think it's important to wrestle with the fact that these are all stories about how you can fix any problem with a fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just not true. You can't. That's not how it works. I, I, we've got a whole lot of wars throughout human history to show you that like, you can't just fight your way out of a problem. It doesn't work that way. There's still going to be defeated people who end up oppressed people on the other side. Uh all all uh, liberators end up as conquerors at some point, uh, at least uh, throughout the course of human history as we know it uh, this thus far. So, yeah, I, I think it, you're right, Dustin. There's there's a troubling narrative there, and I don't think anybody means to. It's just these are the stories we tell each other, and if we don't challenge what can happen in a story, and this is where there is some credence to, to what Marty has to say, right? Like, I dogged on the Irishman at the start of the show, but that's a movie that ends in a very interesting place in terms of what is the human cost of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this film doesn't really, well, uh, you know, uh, Hulk gets sad when Natasha dies and, you know, throws a bench. Uh, the kid from Iron Man three went through puberty and looks different. Nobody recognizes him. Uh, and the little kid wants a cheeseburger and John Favreau is going to get her cheeseburgers. Like, okay, this is sad, but like, okay, sure. Whatever. You know, there's no, there, there is a melancholy to the end of this movie, but it's only because a fictional character that we've spent a lot of time with is dead. Right. There's no 
cost to beating Thanos, right? Well, I mean, you can still have that death payoff. I mean, him using yeah. the the it's the, great. the gauntlet at all is going to kill him. Sure. He doesn't have to do the nuclear option. He can wish any number of things. He could have well, he could have done the thing Thanos did. He could have wished the stones away. He brought everybody back. He could have just wished them out of existence. And which would have jacked up timelines and made. Well, that's, yeah. Then I was going to snort and push my glasses up. Again right, it would have jacked up timelines. <laughs> it would have been a sac- it would have been a bit of sacrifice. It would have done a lot of terrible. But again, you have you have omnipotent power. There's any number of things he could have done, right? I mean, he could have just simply imprisoned and immobilized them all. They could have been captured, and yeah. it would have been over. Yeah, and, Thanos and his army go to space jail, and they can do whatever they want in space jail. Yeah, and then we get rid of the stones, and everything's over. But. It, 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 it's it, it's a, it's a lack of imagination in yeah. what what possibly is the most imaginative sort of device that you could possibly use. Yeah. That you this could... is a fight where people are like riding unicorns into dragons. Right. It's, there's a lot of imagination on display in this fight. And so yeah, the, the the way in which again that's that's the way ideology works because it creates well what a, a line Thanos has is it creates a certain inevitability that. Inevitably, you must do the same kinds of things. Inevitably, you must do Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's no way other than that that the war could have ended that way. It has to be this option. And that's what troubles me, is the inevitability of Tony Stark doing what he has to do, you know, quote-unquote has to do at the end of the story. So anyway, that's that's my ideological, you know, bone to pick. Well, and it's, you know, it's interesting, right? Because Tony Stark, all of his movies are about, uh, you know, how the tech he's created ends up in the wrong hands, right? And uh, how he started this world of superheroes and how him starting the world of superheroes keeps putting the world in greater and greater and greater danger. Uh, It is, you know, we've talked a lot about, or a little bit anyway, about, about character arc, and it is a little unsatisfying. You know, sure, it's cool that he jumps on the grenade, but if you pull at that string of yarn long enough, you realize that Oh, he just used the biggest weapon ever, which mm-hmm. was like his whole thing at the start of this franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weapon you only have to use once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's maybe it's almost like he didn't really learn anything. Yeah, um, I don't know. A- again, sure, okay, within the logic of the film, Thanos is a genocidal uh, madman that apparently, even without the glove, is still strong enough to go toe-to-toe with most of these guys yeah, and gals. Yeah, which is stopped, yeah. You know, I question the, the why Thanos is so powerful, but I don't know, he's from a moon. Who knows? I don't, I don't, I don't know. know rules. My point is, it, it does seem a little... He's a titan. Uh, who cares? <laughs> but yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's troubling. You're right, Dustin. Yeah. Well, any other um, theoretical analytical thoughts before we uh, move to our concluding section of the show? I, I just wanted to uh uh go back and uh apologize that I didn't mention Karen Gillan by name in my review uh because every time I watch this movie I'm blown away by her performance. I I, I think she's incredible. Her uh scene playing uh, paper football is one of the great scenes of yeah, it cinema. It, it's fascinating because she does two completely different performances without really changing a thing. Yeah. It's fascinating. And to you me. so believe it. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, she's I, I love great. her here. Um, yeah, I, I want to talk about Chris Hemsworth as we go out too. I just, uh, we kind of alluded to Thor's alcoholism, but, uh, for me, I, I think Thor's the emotional linchpin of this film, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I love the coldness with which he kills, uh, present day Thanos and the lack of solace that it brings him. Uh, the, the fact that he's scared to hear his name, even though he's already killed him. 
is really powerful. Yeah. Uh, him and his mom's conversation is, uh, I was raised by witch's boy. I see with more than eyes is a hell of a line from Rene Russo. Great line read. But you know, uh, like the, the joy in his eyes when he gets his hammer and goes, I am still worthy. I do. Okay. I am a good guy. Yeah. And, uh, him giving up, uh, his claims to being in charge of, uh, the Asgardians to, to Valkyrie and being like, I spent a thousand years trying to be who people tell me to be, man. Like I gotta, I gotta go figure out who I am. Like, yeah. I, there's power in this. Like, yeah. I really love that arc for all for all three of them. Uh, you know, the main three guys. But I don't know. the The Thor arc for me is a little bit more powerful than uh, Steve going back in time dancing yeah. with Peggy, which I do like. I, I love, that. love it. It's a perfect yeah. way for the movie to end. It's really beautiful. I could use more Haley Atwell in literally everything yeah. I watch. Uh, but you know, for, I, I, I really, Chris Hemsworth, uh, found a way to get to be funny in these movies and then found a way to take that comedy and give it real pathos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's a performance. Yeah. Uh, when you can be funny and still make people cry, now you're talking, baby. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's all I got to say. Yeah. Again, I, I'm, I really am drawn to the way this film deals with failure. Uh, and, uh, for all of its ideological problems, for all of its lack of imagination when it comes to conflict resolution, I do like the idea of wrestling with trauma and failure that, yeah. that that's presented. Uh, Dustin, you got anything you want to go out on? Nope. No, I want to just do the thing then. Let's do Shelf or Trash. Um, yeah, I say you put this on the shelf. It's a good movie. Uh, you don't need to, but uh, you, look, if you're going to watch any Marvel movie, you might as well watch this one too, I guess. I don't know. We don't get a lot of cultural linchpins of this nature. We have Star Wars... That's about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got to go on with Jones. the wind, but then you got to go watch that movie. And who's got the time or the patience? So right. or I, the racism. Well, that's the patience for the racism is what Probably I meant. Gone with the yeah. wind. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, that's I mean, a Titanic. Okay. Yeah. You know, Avatar. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know where we're at. Maybe. Equal yeah. amounts of racism potentially. Um, uh, correct. Uh, gone with. Yeah. Anyway, anyway I, I mean, this is just, big this deal. Is a, this is something that comes along generationally. Sure. You know, and, and so yeah, it's, it's shelfable. I, I think the film itself is shelfable, but I think. The cultural context ensures it a place on a shelf. You don't have to shelf it, is what I'm going to say, because it's going to always be there ubiquitously. Sure. You don't have to own this sure. movie. It's always going to be watchable. It and, is that it is. And so, and honestly, uh, you paying more for it, I don't want them getting the more money, honestly. So borrow it, watch it, get somebody else's Disney Plus codes, something. That's and, right. The Good Trash Honorcast will always encourage you to steal from large companies. Yes. Until we're bought by the House of Mouse. Yes. In that and case, then you will, will pay proper prescriptions. And they'll, they'll, they'll say piracy is a crime and it yep. hurts everybody. Yes. Uh, it is a crime to steal independent films. That's it is, true. That is a crime. Correct. Uh, it's not a crime to steal Disney movies, at least until they buy this podcast. Yes. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, that is a show, and that is a year... And so what we've got coming next is our great big year-end extravaganza. Arthur, tell them what's happening. That's right. It's time for us to pull the train into the station, and we're going to look up back on the year that was good trash in 2019. Let's all go to the Shelvies. Let's all go to the Shelvies. That's right. We're going to be determining our Hebrew hammer, our best worst movie. We're going to decide once more with feeling, and finally we'll, uh, we'll put some movies on a platinum shelf. Uh, it's, it's all about the movies we watched for this podcast this year. Uh, we'll be doing our 2019 best of list in January when we actually have access to a lot of those movies, uh, finally, cause we're in landlocked Oklahoma. Uh, so next week it's, uh, it's just going to be a uh, time for us to have some fun and remind, remember some of the movies we loved and hated for this, uh, this podcast and why we put ourselves through them. If you want to, uh, give us your thoughts, uh, we're look, uh, Spoilers, peeks behind the curtains, whatnot. We're going to be recording this episode literally in five minutes. 
but we would, you know, maybe uh, we'll, we'll get uh, some thoughts from you. We'd like that. You can uh, email us, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have some thoughts on the, the year that was Good Trash Genre Cast, uh, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. You can find the website goodtrashmedia.com. Uh, and, of course, if you want to help us keep the lights on, that is uh, patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, go listen to another podcast. I don't know. You can listen to The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. That's on this network. Uh, you go listen to something that's not on this network. I don't care. Uh, go listen to a podcast without famous people on it. It'll make you feel good. Uh, I'm excited for the Shelby's. You boys ready? I'm ready. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you next time in five minutes. I'm not safe. I'm not safe.